And we are live. Welcome to this week's episode of MicroConf On Air. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every Wednesday, we live stream for 30 minutes and we cover topics related to building and growing startups. They're ambitious, but they fit within the goals of having a life, not burning yourself out and finding freedom, purpose, and relationships. Here, we believe in a long-term mindset. We think in terms of years, not months. As such, we don't burn ourselves out, working crazy hours, sacrificing our mental health or our relationships. We have fun building exciting companies and we love doing it. So if you, um, if this is the first time joining us, welcome. Thank you for uh, checking it out again today. If you aren't in MicroConf Connect, you can head to microconfconnect.com. And that is the place where you are able to ask questions live to MicroConf on air. Uh, it's, a, it's a Slack channel that has uh, just about 1,100 founders, aspiring founders, and people just getting it done and you know building interesting companies. We also uh, are in the last week of our mastermind matching. So you can head to microconfmasterminds.com. We have a few hundred, several hundred applicants maybe by now who have uh, expressed interest in, in becoming part of a small group mastermind. You know, three people, four people, similar geography, um, similar aspirations, similar stage. And we're going to do a, a big match here in a few weeks and uh, get folks together to start, you know, having that accountability, the idea sharing, and just all, everything that comes along with being in a mastermind. If you haven't already, uh, please hit the subscribe button uh, to be no notified about all of our future live videos. Um, if you're not on our YouTube channel, it's youtube.com slash microconf. And of course, there's a subscribe button there to, uh, to hear because we live stream every week. And, um, and then we also post other videos, you know, as microconf talks come in and out. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, this is cool. I have a new thing in, in my outline that uh, producer Xander added. So we are going to do, start doing some founder story spotlights on microconf on air. And we're going to pull that from microconf connect members. And so if you'd be interested in um, coming on microconf on air for, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes having a chat with me about what you're building, what's interesting about it, and just sharing that with you know the the on-air audience and the, the several hundred folks who uh, who watch these episodes and the several hundred who listen to them via audio. Um, there's a, a let, join MicroConf Connect, and you should be getting an, a link in an email to be able to apply for that. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to extend special thanks, as always, to Basecamp and Stripe our headline partners for 2020. And uh, we really appreciate working with them and they make everything we do just a little bit easier. So let's dive in. We already have several questions coming in. Uh, I, I warned our guests today that sometimes we get to the actual content we were supposed to and other times, you know, given the live nature of this, there's a huge benefit to people being able to, um, to ask questions live of, of an expert like April Dunford. So today, April Dunford and I are gonna be talking about how to use storytelling to amplify your positioning. And if you do have questions for April or myself to discuss around positioning and storytelling, um, be sure to do that in the MicroConf on air channel in, uh, in Slack. It's, it's so cool. Some of the comments are already coming through in there. Uh, Georgie says, uh, eagerly awaiting uh, the live chat with, or the live uh, stream with April, big fan of her work. Shar said, yes, she's one of my favorite. And Ben Hill said, one of April's talks a few years ago significantly really reshaped my marketing plan. So that's, that's awesome. April Dunford is a positioning expert. She's author of the book, obviously awesome, how to nail product positioning so customers get it buy it and love it. You can see the orange cover over her right shoulder there. And uh, if you do not own this book, you need to buy this book, Kindle or, or a physical copy. April, is there an audio, uh, audio version coming out soon? 
Oh, the audio version is out. I, I stealthily launched it in the middle of the pandemic. And okay. it's out. You can get it now. And I narrated I'm, it myself. So you get like four solid hours of my Canadian accent. That's the best part. I love it when authors narrate their own book. Cool. I'm excited. It, I have hard. A version. it was hard. I know. It Harder is. than I thought yeah. it was going to be. It takes a long time. Yeah. I think my audiobook uh, for my first book was made. It's like less than five hours, but it took me two days to record because it just, the, you know, that strain on your voice and you start yeah. reading your own words saying, do these even mean anything? You know, you start <laughs> losing the meaning of everything. Right. Um, I, hired, I hired a woman to help me because like, I don't know anything about audiobooks and it's my first book. So I had this woman who's an audiobook expert and she set me up with an hour with an audiobook coach. And the coach says, so think about just read in your normal reading out loud voice. And I was like, I don't ever read out loud. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't have a normal reading out loud voice, dude. And, uh, and yeah. he thought that was really weird because he's a guy that reads out loud for a living. <laughs> All the time, yeah. Well, my reading out loud involves um, what well, used to involve like Dr. Seuss and Berenstein Bears, right. and now maybe it's Harry Potter, but still that's, that's not going to apply you know, as much to a business it's book. Just not the funny the voices. Same. Uh -uh. Yeah. So cool. We're going to we're going to talk about we already have a question coming in, but I want to kind of couch this conversation and talk a little bit about something that I think a lot of founders struggle with. And I know I have uh, myself along along the way. And it's kind of trying to get our head around what positioning is and also how to how not to conflate it with branding, because I think that's something I did yeah. for years. So let's talk quickly about like branding versus positioning. So I'm going to say some sentences and I'd love it if you would would give your take like is that mostly correct? Or here's how that's maybe inaccurate. So when I think of, of branding or a brand, it's what people say about you or your company when you're not around. It's not what you say about your company. It's what they say. Do you feel that's reasonable? Yeah, I think that I think that's getting there. Like, um, here's the thing about positioning. I like to think about positioning as kind of the fundamental underpinning to everything we do in marketing and sales. It is the input to a lot of what we do. So when we talk about messaging or branding, or I'm gonna do a tagline, or I have my point of view on the market, um, all of these things are later in the process. They need positioning as an input. So even mm. if, like if I were to say my brand is what people say about me when I'm not around, I would say, well, positioning defines who those people are. <laughs> like, yes, I have a yeah, you see everything. Everything right, so, stemming so, from positioning. Everything, like I kind of got to define a set of things first, right? So it's, it's who am I competing against? Or what are the alternative ways of solving the problem that my product solves, right? So what am I displacing? How am I different than that? What is the value I can uniquely deliver for customers and then what customers are we talking about? I don't deliver that value to anybody. So what are the customers that actually really, really care a lot about that value? Once I understand those things, then I can say, okay, if I know all of that, then what should my brand be like? What should my messaging be like? What should my campaigns look like? What sort of sales motion do I need? What is my point of view on this market? And even what, what is the market that I intend to win? All those things, I kind of can't get to those until I understand, like, I got a product and it's a really good fit for a customer for a reason. So I need to understand that connective tissue. That definition is what positioning is. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. So I've thought a lot about, tell me if you think this is accurate as well. As, as a founder myself who is, you know, I've run small companies, I was always doing the positioning myself in essence. I'd have a customer uh, conversation with For customers sure. and then it was like, we're bootstrapped. And I was just kind of making it up as we went along. And sometimes I got it right. And sometimes, you know, who knows I didn't, but I always thought of positioning as like this way. Um, it's a way to communicate who you're for and how you're different from your competition in a yeah. way that gets you, it gets you out of a feature comparison. That's why right. I, I felt like features are down. I'm going to hit my own microphone, but like features are down here and like positioning was on top of that. So if I can just communicate positioning really well, people always care about features, but they're not going to sit there and say, oh, MailChimp has this and, you know, Aweber has this and blah, blah, blah. If it's like, hey, I'm, I'm the email marketing provider for XYZ, you know, and not for these people that maybe it, it gets out of, it gets away from that nitty gritty nitpicky positioning race. I'm sorry, feature race. Does feature that function resonate? checklist feature. stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is it, right? And so like but a key part of your positioning is again, I'm I'm kind of trying to figure out this is what I've got that's different than other things out there. This is the value that that can deliver and these are the people that really care a lot about that value. So I should be able to put a box around a market like a set of customers with a common set of um, characteristics that I can say, look, customer, you know, if you want this, you can go buy whoever. And if you want that, you can go buy whatever. But if you really want to do this and you look like this, then I'm the only game in town. And that usually has nothing to do with specific features, like features are important, but it more has to do with, this is the value those people, the, the features can deliver. And here's why it's important to folks like you. So I kind of need to understand, you know, you're not a best fit for everybody. You're a best fit for folks with a certain set of characteristics. You really need to know what that is. And then you can say, look, you know, if you're like this, then you need this. And if you need that, I'm the only game in town. Very cool. Okay, so that's actually an interesting segue into, uh, I have two questions from James Kennedy. He's watching via YouTube. His first question is, he says, cold, e cold email, oh, no, I'll do that one. Yeah, Xander. How do you know when you've properly tested your positioning? Uh, this is a good one. So I get asked this a lot. So again, if you think about positioning as you know, these, these set of components and messaging is something that you do after you figure out your positioning. Like, how do you test the positioning without mistakenly just testing messaging? Like we're tech people, right? So when we say, oh, we're gonna test positioning, what everybody wants to do is throw up a couple of landing pages and run an A-B test on that and we'll see what works better. The problem with that is I'm not just testing the positioning, I'm also testing messaging, landing page design, are, am I getting the right customers coming in to, to properly have this be a test? So am I testing my right segment of customers? And then even if the test wins or loses, I don't know why if I'm doing a landing page test because I don't get to ask people questions and find out what the heck they were doing. So my favorite way to test positioning is uh, you figure out the positioning. So, you know, and, and my book has a methodology for doing this, but you figure out the positioning, which is you, you say, okay, these are the competitive alternatives to what I do. These are the features that make me different. This is my differentiated value. This is my, these, this is my customer segment that cares a lot about that. Therefore, this is the market I'm going to win. So I have that. Now I can take that 
and translate it into what I would call a sales narrative, which is a little bit like saying, I'm going to make a pitch deck out of this, not a pitch deck for investors, a pitch deck for customers, different thing. So I'm going to make a pitch out of this thing. And then I'm going to try it with actual prospects that meet my definition of what an ideal customer should look like. Now, how I used to do this when I was internal as a vice president of marketing at startups is I would then take, I'd build this pitch and then I would then take my best salesperson. And what I'm trying to control for there is lousy salesmanship, right? So I'm going to take my best salesperson, my person, you know, they, these, this person knows how to sell. I'm going to train them on this pitch. We're going to go and find some prospects that look like the prospects I would assume would be really love this pitch. Then we're going to test it. And so how we test it is my salesperson pitches. I'm also on the call and I'm taking notes. So what I'm looking for is where is the customer getting confused? What kind of questions is the customer asking? Um, where is the customer getting really excited? And then after, at the end of the pitch, I would take all kinds of notes. And at the end of the pitch, I would then go back and I would sit with my sales rep and say, how'd you think that went? Well, what do you think was good and what wasn't good? And I'd be looking at things like, you know, there was that point where they said, so you're just like Salesforce. And you're like, God, we're not a CRM. Why do they think we're a CRM? What the heck? You know? <laughs> Which is a sign your positioning is not working. Or there'd be a part where folks got really, really excited. And so we'd then take the deck, tune it, and then we'd go out and we'd keep trying. And how I knew I had really good positioning is the point when my salesperson said, this deck is amazing and I'm not going back to the old one. <laughs> I'm mm. only going to pitch using this now mm. because it's great. Then I would feel like, okay, now I've got positioning that works, a sales narrative that communicates that. Now I can go and do messaging on the homepage and take a look at my go-to-market and all the rest of the stuff. So that's how I'd like right. to do it. Just because you get a lot more signal face-to-face. -face. Yep. If you don't have salespeople because you sell zero touch or whatever, I would still recommend that you do it. You just do it yourself with prospects over the phone and you try your pitch out and you see if it works. And that's way easier to tell if it's working or not than it is trying to do landing pages or things where you don't actually get to look the customer in the eye and say, do you look confused? <laughs> right. Oh, cool. No, that actually answered, and James had a second question, but he was, I think you've answered it because he essentially said like, is cold outreach then a good way to test positioning because you can control the audience? And, and it sounds like you wouldn't do it. You need to do the cold outreach, get them on the phone and then have the conversation right. is, is what you're saying. Right. It's yeah. like, so, you know, in a normal sales process, it would be, I've already, you know, I've already done the outreach. They've already agreed to give me half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever. Then I'm in pitching them with this sales narrative to see if it works. Yep. Cool. Okay. There's one other question that's come in from YouTube and it's how to position a new category. Oh, I everybody mean, create, loves this question. I know. I was going to say, <laughs> creating a new category of product or service, what's the best way to position it? Now, my answer to that yeah. is don't do that yeah, <laughs> unless you have millions of dollars, right? Yeah. Good. You can but, answer this one. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of that, right? It's like, I don't, I know so few like small, it's like, yeah, if you have 10, 20 million in the bank, boy, HubSpot did this, right? And and if you talk to Darmesh, he's like, yeah, it took us years and millions and millions of dollars to invent or, or you know, invent and promote um, inbound marketing, That's right? It. That was the term they, they developed, right? Like it, so, you know, if you think about it this way, like, what is the what is the purpose of a market category? The purpose of a market category is to make it, is to give your product some context, 
and make it easy for your product to be understood. So if I tell you I got a thing and it's email, you, you just made a whole bunch of assumptions about what it does. I'm like, okay, I know your competitors, you compete against against uh, Gmail and maybe that hay thing now. Um, and, and I know what you cost, you're pretty much free or you charge a little bit. Um, I, I know a handful of features, I would expect you to have a calendar, I would expect you to have a whole bunch of stuff, right? But if I said my thing was chat, totally different set of assumptions. You're like, oh, now I don't need a calendar and I expect you to do spam filtering in a different way. I expect you to do read receipts in a different way. All this stuff is different. Your assumptions around it are different. So market categories act as kind of a shorthand to say, you know, to get you like a certain, oriented in a certain direction. And you're like, okay, your email, I kind of get that. Okay, your chat, I kind of get that. Um, so, you, there's a lot of benefits in positioning yourself in existing category and sort of using that as the starting point and then saying, I, you know, I'm not perfect for everybody, but if you're these kind of people inside this category, then I'm the thing for you. Now, what category creation is, is you're basically saying, you know what, none of those categories work for me because my stuff is so special that putting it in any of those categories gives me the wrong starting point. So what I got to do instead is I say, hey, I got this great thing and it's a flu flummer. Then you're like, what the frick's a flu flummer? I don't know what a flu flummer is. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> so now I got I to gotta start way back and I got to say, look, in the beginning, there was email and there was chat, but they don't do this thing. And so we need this new category and it's called flu flummer. And the reason it's not chat is this, and it's not email because of this. And it solves a completely different problem, which you don't even know you had, because if you didn't know you have it, there would be a category of solutions to solve it, right? So I got to spend the first, probably what, five years, six years, selling you on the problem before I even get to really sell you on the solution. And then here's where this is really terrifying is, even if I do manage to do that, the vast majority of startups that attempt to create a category when they're really small, get beat at the exact moment that the category starts to emerge and they get beat by fast followers that come snicking in right at the minute where everybody's starting to go, flu flummer, yeah, that's cool. I kind of want one of those flu flummer things. And then a million little venture back guys come showing up saying, oh yeah, flu flummer, we're one of those two only better. <laughs> so right. it's like MySpace versus Facebook, right? It's like every single search engine and then Google shows up. Like it's like, it's like Google Glass is my example that I use now, right? Like they did all the heavy lifting to teach us what smart glasses were, blew their brains out. Even Google couldn't do this. And what do they, you know, do they own the smart glasses category now? No, there's a thousand people in that category and they're nowhere in it. So the, the place where this works really well is if you start out as a niche play in an existing category. You get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is gain site, by the way. You get bigger and bigger. You get to a point where you're 100 million revenue, 200 million revenue. You're starting to max out because you own the whole category. And then you say, you know what? This category is not enough. <laughs> we need this. And then you define this bigger thing uh, and and you can create the category from there. That is the most common way that categories get created is by big companies that own their space and they create a new space in order to expand where they fit. Now, it isn't impossible. Like you said, HubSpot did it. 
Um, and in my book, I have an interview with Mark Organ, who is the guy that uh, invented marketing automation as a category with Eloqua. And so he talks about how he did that and how, you know, he, he basically identified a set of users, which were demand gen marketers that were doing this, you know, weird stuff with spreadsheets <laughs> that other marketers weren't doing. And he said, you know what, we could automate that. So he started out with this thing called demand gen automation. And then what happened is demand gen became such a big thing that we started thinking of that as that's everything that marketing does, isn't it? And then that became marketing automation. But there are very, very few examples of a company that set out from when they were very small and actually successfully executed on that. And even the story of Eloqua, you know, is a bit bumpy. Like most of the founding team wasn't there when they finally did create that category. Yep. Yeah, and a good example of someone who just one off the top of my head who got very big and then created that category is a uh, WordPress engine, WP Engine. They were, you know, the fastest WordPress hosting, and then within the past, right. I believe it's a couple years, they're now it's like WordPress website experience or something. That, and everyone, right. you know, there are other folks now trying to follow, but but they were doing you know 100, 200 million a year to your you know to your point. Right. I wanna I wanna make sure to cover today. We're still getting questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put those on hold because I I really want to hear your thoughts on um, this idea behind. Uh, branding and storytelling and messaging. And you specifically had a, a really interesting tweet thread that once you start talking, I'll paste into the chat so folks can see it. Um, but you were talking about the book, you know, building a story brand and um, that that there were concepts, they kind of glossed over the fundamental concepts of positioning while claiming that like telling a story and that branding does the same thing. So can you talk to us about, you know, your your thoughts there? Yeah, so so this came out of a set of conversations I had with a couple of friends of mine that are like super smart marketing people. And, um, and I started to get this impression that people were trying to do positioning by building a story. And, and I had a moment where I thought, is that possible? Maybe you can actually do that. So I went down the rabbit hole of like reading all these books that, that, that teach storytelling frameworks and building a story brand is one of them. And it's a really good one. Um, and so building a story brand is written by some guys and they're, they're um, Hollywood screenwriters or whatever. They're like super storytelling folk. And so they, they basically have taken, have developed a formula or a structured process for doing storytelling, which I'm all about structured processes. So I'm like, this is great. Uh, here's the problem though. And the problem with every single one of these storytelling frameworks is it assumes that you already have the inputs figured out. In fact, it doesn't even identify the inputs as inputs. So it'll say, okay, look, uh, we have the, in order to tell a good story, we need to know who the hero of the story is. So the hero of the story is your, your best fit customer. It's your best fit customer. Great. So how do I know what my best fit customer is? And their answer to that is like, get the team together in a room and brainstorm it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> if it was that easy, man, <laughs> we would all be doing this. Like, no, this is why I need a structured process to do positioning before I get to the storytelling piece. Because again, all this stuff is an input. I need to know who is the story about? And I need to know what my value proposition is. I need to know who the bad guy is. That's my competitive alternative. I need to know, hey, I uh, Rob's turned into a Yeah, sorry about a, that. A I just, rainbow. My camera decided to... <laughs> 
we'll let, we'll cut that out in post. This is live stream. Yeah. Oh post. yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, we'll <laughs> fix that later. But so I need to know. So I, they they have all these components, but they assume that you just intuitively know those things. And in my experience, that just isn't true because in the products that I've worked at, we have often gone into the market with a set of assumptions around positioning. Like we, we just, we assume we are this thing, we are for these people, the competitive alternatives are this, the value is this, whatever. But then we get it into market and customers are doing stuff with it that we never would have imagined. Uh, people, you know, we're competing against people that we didn't actually think we were gonna compete against. And fast forward, and the thing that we thought was email is actually better positioned as chat. Or the thing that we thought was gonna really resonate with lawyers, it turns out the accountants love it more. And, the thing that, and so in order for us to really lock down what our best positioning is, we need to take a thoughtful structured process and do it deliberately. And it needs to happen before storytelling because all, I need all that stuff as the input. If I don't have it, then what I end up with it, you know, I could take this building a story brand uh, framework, which, by the way, is excellent. Um, but if I don't have the right inputs, then it's going to be garbage in, garbage out, man. I'm going to have this great story, but but maybe it's not true. <laughs> maybe it doesn't work in the market because it doesn't actually tell a story that wins against my competition. So, yep. so again, I think people don't really understand this. So how you do what you really want is like, I think storytelling is really important, but we're not telling just any story. Like this isn't Hollywood. We don't get to just make up the details. What we want is a sales narrative. We want a story that sells and resonates with the people we're trying to sell to. And so how we do that, you know, again, we need to take a structured approach to that too. Um, but it needs to take into account what our positioning is and all the rest of that stuff. So in the work I do with folks, you know, when I'm working on positioning stuff with folks, we'll do a workshop where we go through the positioning bit. And then at the end of the workshop, we'll build this sales narrative. And how we build it is, and it's not all that different from the building a story brand, you know, all the structured storytelling frameworks are the same, but, what was missing, I thought, from the story brand thing is a really good sales narrative that really encapsulates your positioning kind of goes like this. It kind of says, hey, customer, here's the problem space. We're here today to talk about this problem. This is the problem space. So first I put a boundary around the conversation. Here's the problem. And then I say, look, you got lots of ways to solving that problem today. You are solving that problem today right now. You could use Excel and the problem is this, or you could use these guys and the problem is this. So then I get into alternate solutions and why they suck, <laughs> basically. And then I get into, there's this pivotal point in the sales narrative where you express your point of view on the market. And this is, um, I've seen people call this thing the perfect world scenario. And the perfect world part of the narrative is where you say, you know what, man? We've been thinking about this problem all wrong. In a perfect world, we would have a solution that meets these characteristics. I mean, it would give us this without this, and I'd have this without this, and this without this. And then you lean into the customer and you go, right? And this is basically your point of view on the world that the customer must agree to before I can even bother pitching you anything. 
So if you want, I'll give you an example. Can yep. I give you an example? Do it. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I'll give I'll give you one that I did recently because I was thinking about these guys the other day um, because uh, they they were mainly bootstrappers, but they just raised this absolutely enormous round of financing. <laughs> kind of, uh, I was surprised, but anyway. So uh, you maybe you know them. They're called Postman. You know Postman. Yeah, they like this yeah, API, the, uh, the, yeah. the new API stuff. So I'm not going to wreck the story, but here's a, here's how you would tell the story for Postman, right? So the way Postman goes is, look, here's the problem: APIs are becoming a big deal in software. We are, the number of APIs in software is absolutely exploding, and the vast majority of APIs are utter crap. They're just crap, <laughs> and they're crap for a thousand reasons. Uh, they're they're full of inefficiencies. They got lousy documentation. Um, they're they're uh, really disconnected. There's all these inconsistencies and in naming and all this stuff. It's terrible. Why is it terrible now? How would you go about building an API right now? I know how you're doing it now. There's lots of different alternatives to this, and most people are kludging together a bunch of little piece part solutions. They got one thing for testing and one thing for documentation and one thing for source code repository and one thing for a developer portal. And that's why they're crummy. In a perfect world, like if we really wanted to, to do this right, we would have a tool that would that you would use across the entire life cycle of an API that would um, make sure that all this stuff can, is consistent across the entire API lifecycle, right? Now I haven't pitched Postman yet. I just right, pitched my right. point of Postman's point of view on the world. If you say right to that, then there's no other product you can buy. That's it. Right. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, if you that's say fascinating. No, I actually, I'm actually fine using my testing tools, and I don't think APIs are important and whatever, whatever. Then you just qualified yourself out. You're not my good fit customer. Goodbye. Right. No, I'm not with <laughs> someone I should be talking to. So what do you do if you if you come up with that positioning and then two competitors crop up and they're basically claiming the same thing? In like it's it's you can have this uh, I like generally what you have to have is a unique point of view on the market. And and here's my going in assumption on this and this comes from my days of being a vice president of marketing. So if I got a startup and, and that startup has reasonable traction in the market. Like you're selling stuff and you haven't just sold three, you don't have three customers, you've got dozens of customers. Like you got something there that I can position because customers have all kinds of choices in the world. They can buy anything. And it is like a miracle if you sell anything in this market right now, like everything's so crowded. There's so many choices, you could do anything. So if customers are buying your stuff right now, they're buying your stuff for a reason and they're buying it, even though there's thousands of other competitors, even though there's all kinds of other ways to solve this problem, including just using a darn spreadsheet and still they bought your stuff and still they're giving you money. The trick is to figure out how are you special and different and what is it about those customers that make them really, really love that special and different in your stuff? Which is the which is the underpinning of this positioning process that you got to go through. Once you figure that out, then I can figure out how to tell the story. Then I can figure out how to build the point of view that drives that home. That's why we got to do the positioning stuff first. Right, right, and that's the thing. We're getting some more questions, but I feel like the answer. A lot of folks are like. Does that make sense, hey, or does that just sound like blah 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 blah? No, <laughs> it, 
it does make sense. It's like everything flows from positioning and having a point of view on a market is really important, right? And part of your of your tweet stream about that point of view, you said um, your point of view on a market gives customers context to understand not only when to choose your solution, but also when to choose your competitors. Helping prospects understand helping prospects understand that isn't selling in quotes, it's teaching and teaching. done fairly that education is valuable for everyone. And I think it's a very poignant summary of that point of view model. Right. So like most of the time when you're talking about a point of view, you're sort of saying, look, you can solve this in lots of different ways. I'll give you another example. I have these guys level jump. They're here in Toronto and they do um, uh, sales enablement software. And so their big differentiator in the market is that um, you know, it's kind of like sales onboarding, sales training stuff. So if you got a new sales rep, they help your sales rep get to quota faster, get to first deal faster, to basically get up to speed faster. Now, in their sales narrative, they kind of start out by saying, look, you need to get your, you need to do sales enablement because you're trying to get your reps up to speed faster. Um, and you got lots of different ways you could do that. If you just want a repository of sales training materials, you can get a CMS and that's super, super cheap. Now, if you want to keep track of what courses they've taken and get the little tick boxes of, yes, they've done the training on this and yes, they've consumed this thing, then you can get an LMS, a learning management system. And those are really cheap too. So you could get one of those. And if that's all you're trying to do, get that. But if you really wanted to enable your sales reps and be able to measure whether the training actually worked, meaning did the training get them to their first deal faster or did the training get them to quota faster, then you're going to need something that actually ties into your sales data, right? Now at that point, so they have some customers or prospects that just say, no, we're good. You know, LMS, that's fine. That's all we need to do. We're just doing it for compliance reasons. We don't actually care that much, but the majority, like if you're a fast growing company, which is who they sell to, um, you know, most people would say, well, yeah, we want to know whether that training is actually doing anything. Right, right. <laughs> and if you say yes at that point, well, it turns out Level Jump is the only, they're the only folks that actually can track that data and can answer that. So if you say yes to that point, then it's like, well, good. Now I got something to sell you. Let me tell you about my features and my functions and all that stuff and why you want to buy me. But I got to get you to believe my point of view on the market first. And if you don't, well, there's lots of other things you can buy that are cheaper and whatever. And, you know, go, go ahead and do that. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, April, the time goes quickly and we're a few minutes over already. <laughs> I hate to cut you off. I will have more questions. I have more topic, but I, you know, I want to be mindful of, uh, you know, you coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thanks so much for that, having me. Yeah. And folks are, um, you know, who are not already following you, they can uh, follow you on Twitter at April Dunford, as well as by Obviously Awesome. And after this, I would, uh, anybody who doesn't have it, you should run out, grab it. So thanks again for coming on, April. Thanks so much. All right. So next week, um, we are broadcasting live, same time, same place, microconfonair.com. Uh, we don't have a category picked out yet or a topic picked out, but rest assured it'll be some fun stuff. YouTube.com slash microconf. If you want to hit us on YouTube, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And I will see you then. <laughs>